Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we are going to discuss another of Gerda Lerner's contributions to women's history. It's a logical follow-up to her book, The Creation of Patriarchy, which showed the way human beings instituted societal structures wherein men ruled women from prehistory through the time of the Greeks. The creation of feminist consciousness picks up right about where the creation of patriarchy leaves off, at the beginning of the common era, and it continues through the 19th century. It's also a really exciting text because it documents women's own writings as they begin to wake up and become aware of their subordinate status and try to free themselves of their own internalized sense of inferiority. But before we start, I'd like to introduce my reading partner for today, Jeanette Canari. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, Amy. Jeanette and I know each other from Stanford. We are in the Masters of Liberal Arts program together. And Jeanette, I have loved taking classes with you. You're one of my classmates that I always get really excited when you raise your hand because I think like, oh, she's going to have something so interesting to say. I feel like you're so wise and level-headed and you bring such always just really, really deep insights to texts that we talk about together. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. So thanks for agreeing to be part of the project. I'm so well, happy. It's you're my here. pleasure. It's my pleasure, Amy. And I feel the same way about you knowing that you are going to be in a class that I'm going to take as well. Oh, thanks. Well, so let's start off by usually, um, Jeanette, I have each of my reading partners um, say a little bit about themselves. So if you could tell us a little about yourself and kind of the point of view that you bring to the text today, that would be great. Well, I currently live in California with my husband, Jeff, and our two kids, a daughter in high school and our son in college. I've lived in California for most of my life now. I moved to Silicon Valley to work for a tech startup in the early 90s. Most people I know tend to assume that I grow, I grew up in California but I was actually born and raised in Virginia. My parents were the first generation to immigrate from the Philippines, moving to Norfolk in the mid-1960s, where my dad was in the Navy. I grew up attending parochial school through high school, but since my 20s, I've considered myself a lapsed Catholic. These days, I'm currently working towards a master's degree in the liberal arts, as you know. Being back to school has kept me pretty busy, but I do enjoy being outdoors, whether hiking, gardening, or for photography. I also love art, theater, and travel, and hope one day to be able to resume all that. Yeah, I hope so too. In fact, I was just thinking when you finally make it to Paris, I'm going to visit you there. So hopefully all of our travel plans can happen again someday. We're required we should mention I guess that we're recording during COVID and everything is shut down. We're recording in at the end of 2020. So we're all kind of stuck in our homes, aren't we, Jeanette? <laughs> yes, we're all stuck. But thinking about the future and seeing you in Paris definitely makes it a bit more bearable. So I appreciate <laughs> that, Amy. Let's do it. Um so one all other right. thing I wanted to to ask Jeanette is to see what interested you in doing this project. So my interest in the topic of the patriarchy is twofold. First, from an academic standpoint, my first year of graduate school was spent reading the foundational texts of the Western canon. In two quarters, we covered 2,000 years reading over 20 books, but of those 20, only two were written by women. 
I recall that in my class, there was a collective light bulb moment shared between most of the women in the room with me, that in two millennia, only two books for women were represented. It was crushing to consider that for some reason, women had produced so few surviving works during the same period that gave us Plato, Aristotle, Virgil, Augustine, Dante, Descartes, and so on. Just saying these names, we think of their contributions to Western Civ, but where were the women? My second interest in this topic is more personal. Looking at the literature of women's history is also motivated by my desire to better understand my own mother. It always comes back to our mothers, no matter how old we are. Doesn't it? Yes. She was born in the 1930s, and whether due to World War II or other reasons, she herself grew up to be very motivated to pursue both her education and a career. From the stories she told me as I grew up, she was very proud of her career in the Philippines. And coming to this country, she continued to work in her field. Yet, growing up, I was also very aware of the fact that when it came to decision-making, my mom would always default to my father. I never really understood why until I started to understand more about the patriarchy. Suddenly, things started to click into place. Patterns of behavior that I noticed in my mom and now sometimes notice in myself. That's always a hard part when we actually see it in ourselves too. Mm -hmm. So thank you for asking me to participate in this project. I'm excited to discuss Gerda Lerner's book with you. Yeah, I'm excited too. Thanks for sharing all of that, Jeanette. And it does, I mean... One of the things I keep thinking as I record with all of the, these reading partners and reading the books that this is so important to me. I love history. I love learning about every aspect of the human experience, but this one is important to me because it really has impacted my life in a personal way and, and many of my friends and many of my family members. And so I think that this understanding these paradigms has can have a real impact for people's self-esteem and their relationships and what they visualize for themselves. And so thanks for sharing that personal information, because I think that's why all of this is so important, to be honest, because it has a personal impact. So let's dive in. Uh, Jeanette and I thought that to set the stage, we would share some quotes by prominent men during the centuries that this book covers, which is the first century through about the 18th century in the part of the world that this book covers, which is basically Christianized Europe. So it, it's a small part of the world, but these attitudes have had a big impact through the spread of Christianity and colonization all over the world. So in preparation for discussing the book, we thought we would take turns reading these thoughts on women from some of the influential, influential thinkers of the time that these women were thinking and writing. And so that will create um, a backdrop for the rest of the book. So Jeanette, do you want to start? And we'll just take turns quoting these men. For women, the very consciousness of their own nature must evoke feelings of shame. From St. Clement of Alexandria, a Christian theologian. In pain shall you bring forth children, woman, and you shall turn to your husband and he shall rule over you. And do you not know that you are Eve? God's sentence hangs still over all your sex and his punishment weighs down upon you. You are the devil's gateway. 
You are she who first violated the forbidden tree and broke the law of God. It was you who coaxed your way around him whom the devil had not the force to attack. With what ease you shattered that image of God, man. Because of the death you merited, even the Son of God had to die. Woman, you are the gate to hell. Tertullian, who's known as the father of Latin Christianity. Woman does not possess the image of God in herself, but only when taken together with a male who is her head, so that the whole substance is one image. But when she is assigned the role as helpmate, a function that pertains to her alone, then she is not the image of God. But as far as a man is concerned, he is by himself alone the image of God, just as fully and completely as when he and the women are joined together into one. St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo Regius. And this is the same Augustine who wrote Confessions and City of God. Woman is a misbegotten man and has a faulty and defective nature in comparison to his. Therefore, she is unsure in herself. What she cannot get, she seeks to obtain through lying and diabolical deceptions. And so, to put it briefly, one must be on one's guard with every woman as if she were a poisonous snake and the horned devil. Thus, in evil and perverse doings, woman is cleverer, that is, slyer, than man. Her feelings drive woman toward every evil, just as reason impels man toward all good. St. Albertus Magnus, Dominican theologian. As regards the individual nature, woman is defective and misbegotten, for the active force in the male seed tends to the production of a perfect likeness in the masculine sex, while the production of woman comes from a defect in the active force or from some material indisposition, or even from some external influence. From St. Thomas Aquinas. Men have broad and large chests and small narrow hips, and more understanding than women, who have but small and narrow breasts and broad hips. To the end, they should remain at home, sit still, keep house, and bear and bring up children. Martin Luther, Protestant Reformer. Thus the woman, who had perversely exceeded her proper bounds, is forced back to her own position. She had, indeed, previously been subject to her husband, but that was a liberal and gentle subjection. Now, however, she is cast into servitude. John Calvin do not any longer contend for mastery, for power, money, or praise. Be content to be a private, insignificant person, known and loved by God and me. Of what importance is your character to mankind if you were buried just now? Or if you had never lived, what loss would it be to the cause of God? John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, in a letter to his wife. <laughs> Okay, so that brings us to the end of our quotes, which will create, again, the backdrop for our discussion of this book. Um, throughout the podcast, my readers and I 
um, we'll talk about the definitions of words. A couple of episodes ago, Malia and I talked a lot about the terms patriarchy and matriarchy and what they technically referred to. And we talked about the words matrifocal, matrilocal, matrilinear, etc. And I think it's really useful to have a working vocabulary that is as precise as possible. So I want to just pause here in between those quotes and our discussion of the book by talking about the word misogyny. So misogyny is used to describe all kinds of practices and attitudes that are unfriendly to women. But I think it's worth pointing out that the etymology of the word is, it's of course, Greek. It's miso, M-I-S-O, which means hatred of or aversion to, or contempt for. So like some of my kids have a condition called misophonia. So phonia would be like sound. So they have an extreme hatred of certain sounds. Or someone who is misanthropic hates people because miso, hatred of, anthro, people. So the other half of the word misogyny is gyny or gyny, G-Y-N-Y, which means woman, like gynecology, the study of women's bodies. Um, and like Ginny as opposed to Andro. Andro means man and Ginny means woman. So androgyny means man, woman, or both neutral. So I think it's worth pointing out um, here if misogyny means technically means hatred of women, I think it's worth noting that a lot of those quotes that we just heard. I would classify them as really, truly misogynistic, right? Those are, it's not representative of benevolent patriarchy, like a dad that wants to protect his daughter and kind of accidentally limits her because he's too protective and, or they're not, to me, they didn't sound kind of misguidedly sexist, like the Victorian cult of domesticity that tells women, like, you're the angel in the house and you're the most beautiful and noble. And so stay in the house. We want to protect you. That's more benevolent. I, I don't think of those things as misogyny. And I think there's power in calling misogyny what it is and reserving that word for real contempt against women. And to me, those quotes, I think, yep, there it is. That's misogyny. Um, some of those church fathers really did think of women. And of course, they were most likely influenced by Aristotle. You hear that language of woman as the misbegotten man, right. right? Definitely influenced by the Greeks, but then sadly supported by their particular reading of the Bible. And so I thought I would just start out with that, that definition, since we do that in, in some of our episodes. But diving into Lerner, we started with these quotes by church fathers because that's where we are on our historical timeline. And so I'll just read one quote from Lerner about the role of Christianity during these centuries in Europe. She says, whether women were religious or not, they were confronted by the core texts of the Bible, which were used for centuries by patriarchal authorities to define the proper roles for women in society and to justify the subordination of women. Genesis, the fall, and St. Paul. Since male objections to women thinking, teaching, and speaking in public were for centuries based on biblical authority, the development of feminist Bible criticism can be seen as an appropriate and perhaps not unexpected response to the constraints and limitations imposed upon women's intellectual development by religiously sanctioned gender definitions. These biblical core texts sat like huge boulders across the paths women had to travel in order to define themselves as equals of men. Um, and then Lerner also points out that 
in addition, the Bible was the one text available to them. Once women began to read with the Protestant Reformation, where the common people were taught to read and literacy um, started spreading with the with the Protestant emphasis on the scriptures and the individual's relationship to God, women began to read, but the only text they had was the Bible. So with all of that as our background, we're now going to dive into the text and we're going to take turns highlighting a few of the main points that stood out most to us. So Jeanette, I think you have our first point. Yes. And here's our first point. Women absorb the messages of their own inferiority. This is what Gerda Lerner says about this point. The fact that women were denied knowledge of the existence of women's history decisively and negatively affected their intellectual development as a group. Women who did not know that others like them had made intellectual contributions to knowledge and to creative thought were overwhelmed by the sense of their own inferiority or conversely, the sense of the dangers of their daring to be different. Without knowledge of women's past, no group of women could test their own ideas against those of their equals, those who had come out of similar conditions and similar life situations. Every thinking woman had to argue with a great man in her head, instead of being strengthened and encouraged by her foremothers. For thinking women, the absence of women's history was perhaps the most serious obstacle of all to their intellectual growth. So interestingly, rereading this quote right now just makes me wonder what it would be like for us as women if we didn't have to overcome this sense of inferiority, if we just knew that the words we had to say would be readily accepted and would not even be questioned. And I'm realizing, I think that's what it's like for men, right? Mm. Just reading these quotes from, from Gerda Lerner, it just makes me realize how different our experiences are as women, having to always kind of argue to say, we actually have a right to be here. We have a right to think. But for men maybe not all men but for a lot of men it's just a given they don't even have to they don't even have to go through that mental process mm-hmm. right so she does give us written evidence from as early as the 8th century of women experiencing the sense of inferiority she writes about hugerborg a nun who settled in germany in 762 Hugerborg was educated and well-known in her time for writing two biographies about two brothers, a bishop and an abbot. Her biography for the abbot also chronicled the conversion of the Germans and Franks to Christianity. Therefore, her work is considered to be a historical text. Yet, despite her achievements and renown, this is how she speaks of herself in the prologue of one of her books. I am unworthy. I, who am, as it were, a puny creature, compared with my fellow Christians, especially corruptible through the womanly frail foolishness of my sex, not supported by any prerogative of wisdom or exalted by the energy of great strength. 
she also calls herself an ignorant creature. Mm. So that quote, it is. That's how I felt as well. It's like she's just internalizing the messaging that she's heard from typically the men around her. Mm-hmm. It is heartbreaking. Now, during the Middle Ages, Lerner explains there was a literary convention called the Humility Topos. I appreciated Lerner's description of this and explanation of it and the context that she brings. Mm-hmm. She says, this was a practice of writers to use the argument of their ignorance as a foil to heighten the power and effect of their miraculous inspiration. In other words, for dramatic effect, writers of this time would claim their ignorance until they received divine inspiration. Despite this custom, Lerner points out that Hugerborg's prologue differs from the humility topos. In essence, Hugerborg's words are an apology to her reader for being a woman who thinks and writes. Her plaintive words indicate her belief in her own inferiority. As a result of this inferiority, Hugerberg's words reveal the agonizing struggle within her mind and soul. Hmm. That's a powerful example. I love that you shared that example, Jeanette. I had forgotten about that from the book. And it just, it's an exact example of what we were just talking about it before you read it, right? That men have their reasons to feel insecure and maybe not up to the task. And they, I had forgotten about that humility topos, that um, kind of literary device of saying like, oh, who am I to be the mouthpiece of God? Or who am I to have this insight? But a man is going to be working with like, you know, maybe other human frailties, whatever his particular idiosyncrasies are. But a woman is like, no, fundamentally, I just have to apologize for being a woman. I I don't even have a right to think this because I'm a woman. And a man is never going to have to write, I don't have the right to participate in this conversation because I'm a man. They just, they never have to. They just do it. They just do it. They just do it. And they may have weaknesses, but they're not, they never have to apologize for their sex. So that was like the perfect, a really great example. And I had completely forgotten about that from the book. So I'm glad you highlighted that. So interesting. Shall I go on with our second point? Yes, please do. Okay. Okay. So the second point that we identified, and this is like, for me, perhaps the iconic Gerda Lerner concept, which is women reinventing the wheel. So here's a quote from Lerner. She says, Men develop ideas and systems of explanation by absorbing past knowledge and critiquing and superseding it. Women, ignorant of their own history, did not know what women before them had thought and taught. So generation after generation, they struggled for insights others had already had before them. I illustrate this by surveying women's Bible criticism over a period of 1,000 years and show the endless repetition of effort, the constant reinventing of the wheel. And Lerner does, right, and Jeanette, in the, in the book, she does spend a lot of time on women's biblical criticism. And you do see, like, women separated by, you know, hundreds of years they do just think of the same things over and over. And Lerner highlights so many women in this book all throughout centuries when I didn't even know any women were writing at all, which is amazing to read what they're writing. But Lerner keeps pointing out like 
notice that this is exactly what so-and-so said hundreds of years before, which we had just read like 10 pages earlier, right? And Lerner points out, yeah, this is exactly what this other woman said, but she had no knowledge of her writings. There was no way for them to pass on their knowledge. And if you just think about like, like you mentioned, Jeanette, the, the um, thinkers and the scientists that we read in our foundations course in our liberal arts degree, they needed those discoveries of the, the people who preceded them in order Absolutely. to have the next discovery, right? You have to stand right. on the shoulders of the person who came before you. Right. And if men had not had access to the scientific discoveries and the philosophical arguments of, the, of their predecessors, they wouldn't have been able to evolve the way they did either. And, and women have just been kept behind. I feel this is what, what learners point is because they weren't able to have access to each other's works. And I, I mean, I, and I think of this on a personal level too. I go back to the journals that I wrote when I was in my early twenties and I just, I read what I wrote and I just see myself laboring and struggling to figure out what I was perceiving in the world around me and why things felt off to me and why I just felt like hurt by certain things and felt like, oh, there's this injustice that I'm just trying to figure out. And, and that's part of the reason I'm doing this project is because as I've read these books, I've discovered, like sometimes I discover the exact ideas and trains of thought that I wrote in my own journals. And I'm like, someone said this in the 1600s and it makes me mad and, and frustrated that I took years of mental toil to develop these these thoughts when I could have saved myself so much heartache and so much time and effort that could have spent be, could have been spent somewhere else if I had just known that someone already figured that out right. um right I mean if we had been able to like you just said like put it on our calendar and say you know we may have absorbed a, a sense of our own inferiority for being females what if we had put that on our calendar when we were like 13 or 14 and right. said like note to self push back against that. Anytime that comes up in my thoughts, I am not going to form mental patterns throughout my life where I, you know, accidentally subconsciously think of myself as lesser. Anyway, we would have been saved from a lot of wasted time and sadness had we had access to other women's wisdom throughout the years. So yes. Um, I don't know. That was my, that was my thought in response to that quote from learner. Did you have anything any response that you wanted to share, Jeanette? Well, there's just so much on this, as you know. <laughs> but I love that example of 13, of being 13, right? And what if at 13, each of us became conscious of that, that we did not have to absorb these messages of inferiority? They're just not true, right? Can you imagine at 13? in terms of the behavioral patterns that we were, we would have adopted the way the messaging when we would go to school, what we would be telling ourselves, how that would be so different. I think, I don't know. It's fascinating to think what would have been right. If we had done that. So thank you for sharing that. And that example, I think, I think the other thing that I thought of from your comments, Amy, was just a sense of, of being alone and feeling this way. Right. When you were 13, I also kept journals when I was in, a teenager and, and just just feeling insecure or just trying to figure things out and trying to figure out how I fit in 
and feeling alone and feeling like I was the only person experiencing that. So there had to be something wrong with me because everyone else was just fine. And then, of course, as we grow older, we realize that's not the case. But Gerda Lerner, I think, in her book, she really she really points it out to us, this notion of having to reinvent the wheel, not knowing that other women have been feeling and going through the same thing. It's just really powerful. I think also not knowing that women have undergone this. And I think for me, what's kind of painful to realize is that if we knew that so many of us have struggled on, with this on an individual level, we could have been there for each other, mm-hmm. right? I could We could have reached out. We could have reached out to help each other and we wouldn't have felt so alone. And I think not knowing you're alone is in itself powerful and empowering. Mm-hmm. So going back or as a continuation of that point, I think that much of our own self-perception of our inferiority derives from that feeling of being alone and not realizing that countless women before, after, and during our time have experienced and felt the same. Mm -hmm. My hunch is that there are mechanisms embedded in the patriarchy so that this experience of being a remote other who is outside acceptable norms comes with a type of social shame so that we are less likely to speak of our experiences and come together in support of each other. It is why Lerner is right that we need to know our own history as women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally ag- agree. I think in terms of mechanisms embedded in patriarchy, I think specifically like what we're talking about of the prohibition of education for women and girls. Yes. And I think, I mean, it's that's a really common tactic for oppressors, right? It makes me think of the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Remember that part where he's yes. a kid and he's like, hmm, they don't want me to learn to read. I wonder why. And that makes him think, oh, then I better learn to read. And he figures out, he's like, oh, this is why they don't want enslaved people reading because then we start asking questions and then we start questioning the whole system. And so he just, I remember reading that autobiography when I was maybe a teenager and having that really like a light bulb moment of like, oh, that's why education is so important. One of the many reasons why literacy and education is important because it trains you to think and it trains you to ask questions. And so I think that's, like you said, there's there's mechanisms embedded in patriarchy, just like they're embedded in all oppressive systems that say, yeah, I think... I think we're not going to have you go to school <laughs> because they because they know what will happen. Right. right? That then you'll question everything and maybe there will be a revolution. So right, exactly. Oppressor's power. So and that leads us to the next point, I guess, because the next point I think is about the educational disadvantaging of women, right? Yes. So point three is the educational disadvantaging of women. And for this point, the word that came to my mind is the term deprivation, which Lerner repeats over and over again in her description of Sarah Grimke. Hmm. Born in 1792 in Charleston, South Carolina, as a daughter of a wealthy plantation owner, Grimke later became an abolitionist and suffragist. In her youth, Grimke was aware of the shortcomings of her education. 
particularly in contrast to the classical education received by her brothers. So even as a girl, she already knew something was up and that she wasn't being treated in a way that was fair and just, particularly given her brothers and what they were receiving for their education. Here's a quote from Grimke. With me, learning was a passion. Had I received the education I craved and been bred to the profession of the law, I might have been a useful member of society. And instead of myself and my property being taken care of, I might have been a protector of the helpless. Many a woman shudders at the terrible eclipse of those intellectual powers, which in early life seemed prophetic of usefulness and happiness. It is because we feel we have powers which are crushed, responsibilities which we are not permitted to exercise, rights vested in us as moral and intellectual beings, which are utterly ignored and trampled upon. It is because we feel this so keenly, we now demand an equal education with man. So reading these words, I am, first of all, just struck by what an intellectual powerhouse Grimpy is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just her ability to express herself and such personal emotions. She just brings them to life, right? I've, I know you have as well, because we were in the same class where we were reading journals from this time period of men. But to read Grimke's words, I think is really powerful and extremely gratifying. I agree. So reading her words also, of course, give me pangs of restless frustration for her. She was absolutely aware that she has been deprived from developing into her full potential, which in itself is just really heartbreaking to see that she is completely aware of this deprivation. Her parents recognized her intelligence, but they were both adamant that she would not cross over the expectations for women of their class. Her father was a prominent attorney and judge. As such, she also wanted to pursue a career in law, like her father. Her father let her borrow his law books, but he would not allow her to learn Latin to further her studies. I just, that's so stifling, right? It's like, okay, you can just learn this little bit. You get this little piece and I'm going to cut you off and you just cannot go further for no reason, for no real true reason other than your gender. So I think that these sense of hard limits placed on the education of women without any account of their intellectual ability or personal agency I don't know, maybe we have come far enough so that seeing that today, it just, it seems, it's just really overwhelmingly awful, right? That this could have been the reality of so many. I also think that the sense of not being chosen by a power authority, in this case, her father and her mother, also feeds into the experience of inferiority that we pointed out earlier. It also maddeningly encodes and ensures the pattern that men should lead and women should follow. So I also wanted to just give some context about the state of education. Education became institutionalized when elites, military, religious, or political, need to assure their position and power by means of training a group to serve and perpetuate their interests. Since women were excluded from military, religious, and political elites, 
they were considered to have little need for formalized learning. On the other hand, daughters of elites such as princesses and noble women, who might have to serve as stand-ins for sons or a husband, were as carefully tutored and trained as their brothers. Education was a class privilege for both sexes. From that quote of Lerner, I have an example of a law promulgated by King Henry VIII of England, which prohibited women and other gentle and noble women together, along with artificers, journeymen, husbandmen, laborers, and serving men, from reading the Bible in English, either in private or to others. All women, except noble women, are classed with lower class men. Also, the fame and notoriety of learned women of the Middle Ages and the early Renaissance attest to their rarity. With a few exceptions, they were noted more for existing at all than for their accomplishments. So I remember pointing that out to one of our instructors in our foundations classes, because mm-hmm. from time to time we would discuss women such as Beauvoir, who I believe you also have another podcast devoted to. And yep. I made the comment to him that why is it that when we studied women, at least in our classes, it seemed that the lectures focus on the lives of the women, the biographies of the women, as opposed to their actual works. But when we studied the men, we always talked about the works themselves. So, and it was interesting. I think this particular professor was just really open to getting feedback, but it was interesting to just see him, you know, take a a moment to pause and think, oh yeah, you're right. And we're doing that. We should try to fix it. Yeah. That's a really great criticism and really astute observation. That's great that you brought it up. I hope that it changed you know, for the classes in the years after yours, that they changed that in the curriculum and in their, their lecturing. Because that's a classic problem, isn't it? That we yes. talk about women in terms of their relationships and their lives right. and even like what they wear, right? And I was just thinking that, exactly, right? It's like, what work. shoes is she wearing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as our second example of educational disadvantaging, we have Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz from Mexico. So I had to look up, I will tell you, that Sor is actually the religious title in Spanish or in Spain of sister that's given to a nun. I had not known that until reading Mm. about Inez de la Cruz. So Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz was a scholar who kept breaking the rules by reading and writing poetry. For context, she lived in the 17th century, more than 100 years prior to Grimke. Here's a quote from Sorwana. Who has forbidden women to engage in private and individual studies? Had they not a rational soul as men do? Well, then, why cannot a woman profit by the privilege of enlightenment as they do? What divine revelation? What rule of the church? What reasonable judgment formulated such a severe law for us women? I have this inclination to study, and if it is evil, I am not the one who formed me thus. I was born with it, and with it I shall die. Wow. Wow. Yes. The logic in her words to me is so powerful. Mm -hmm. There's so much here 
But what jumps out to me the most is her inference that women's ability for independent thought is really a part of our humanity, not a sin or digression from nature. She also directly addresses the rationality of rules and conventions that prevent women not only to pursue a public education, but their own private studies. Before leaving this quote, I also wanted to point out the limited choices for women at the time. Sorwana, like so many other women, had to choose either the cloistered life of the nunnery or marriage. And returning to the issue of educational disadvantaging of women, the ability to write was considered a craft which was difficult to teach and therefore was taught by men. Lerner distinguishes the difference between learning to read and learning to write. Because it was considered a preparation for jobs, writing was for over a hundred years taught mainly to boys in town-supported schools, staffed by schoolmasters. From 1690 on, some girls won access to these schools, but schools were closed to most girls until the middle of the 18th century, when in 1760, in Dedham, Massachusetts, or rather Dedham, Massachusetts, became the first town to provide regular summer sessions for both boys and girls. New London, Connecticut admitted girls to school in the summer and only during the hours from five to seven in the morning. Oh, boys, I forgot I know. that from the book. <laughs> oh my gosh, that just hits me again. Oh, I did, I did not know that before reading the book and then I had since forgotten since reading it and having you point it out again, it just like hits me again. It's just, I feel incensed. It's it is. so That's sad. <laughs> Boys wow. were to be educated for social usefulness and political leadership as citizens of a republic. Girls were to be educated for their social usefulness as wives and mothers. Mm-hmm. Most of the female academies offered a curriculum which stressed accomplishments and which reinforced a girl's indoctrination to a strictly gender-defined role in life. Again, so sad, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk about, we're going to read Mary Wollstonecraft in a couple ah. of episodes. And she, as you know, she will talk a lot about this, the social usefulness of educating girls for their roles as wives and mothers and the you know whether it's ever morally justified to educate boys for their roles and girls for their roles so that we're going to talk a, a lot about huh, that with Lucille in a in a few episodes it's such such a great point to bring out one Lucinda Foote was denied the admission she sought to Yale in 1792 with the comment that she was qualified in all respects except for her sex Lucinda Foote may have been only moderately talented or possibly she may have been gifted with genius we will never know, for she was female, and that was all that mattered. Mm. Margaret Fuller at Harvard in the 19th century also experienced the same, as did Polly Murray at Harvard Law School in the 20th century. Yeah, there's that famous um, letter that Polly Murray got her rejection letter from Har- Harvard, and they said exactly what you just described with Lucinda Foote in 1792 with Polly Murray in maybe the 1940s, I think it was. And they said, yeah, we regret to inform you, you're completely qualified, but 
we can't admit you because you're female. And she wrote, oh, I wish I had looked it up to have the exact wording. We should look it up because Polly Murray just writes this, uh, this saucy retort back to them. It's like, <laughs> could, please let me know what you would like me to do about that. Basically is what she's saying. Like, it, it seems easier for you to change your law than for me to change my sex. So let's talk. But they did, they didn't let her in. And she was like a brilliant she became a brilliant lawyer. I don't remember where she did eventually go to law school, but it wasn't Harvard because Harvard wasn't allowing women at the time. So it continued for a long time into, until really recently. It's just, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Um, so our next point is more hopeful. And that is that women, individual women did eventually break through. Um, a quote that I'd like to share from Lerner here is, is this. She says, the concept that women are born inferior, have a weaker mind and intellect, are more subject to emotions and need to be ruled by men, had a devastating effect on women's minds. Even extraordinary women, talents which occur once or twice a century, had to struggle against this notion which deprived them of authenticity and authority. Each thinking woman had to spend inordinate amounts of time and energy apologizing for the very act of thinking. Um, we, we've kind of discussed that already in our conversation today. Um, but the next part, like I said, is going to be more hopeful because Lerner does highlight these women who did do that work um, and kind of broke through the rules and were able to make contributions that actually did impact people after them. And we're going to talk about three of them. Roswitha, is that pronounced okay? I think it's German, but Roswitha of Gandersheim is the first one. And then Hildegard von Bingen is the second. And the third will be Christine de Pisan. So we'll start with Roswitha of Gandersheim. So Roswitha of Gandersheim was a poet and dramatist of the Middle Ages, which just blows me away, right? Because again, studying the Middle Ages... There was this woman who was prodigious in her work, and I knew nothing about her until reading this book. Me neither. She came from high nobility and is thought to have entered the convent early in her life, where she received an excellent education, which included not only religious subjects, but Latin, mathematics, astronomy, and music. The convent's rich library may have helped to foster her education. At the time she was at Gandersheim, this powerful abbey was freed both from church and royal rule, which the abbess, with the abbess having supreme authority. The abbess of Gandersheim had her own court of law, sent the nobles on her lands to battle, and had a seat in the imperial diet. Some of the nuns, presumably Rosvita among them, were actually canonesses. They had to take only vows of chastity and obedience, not vows of poverty, and with permission were free to move in and out of the cloister. They could own books and some property and were permitted to have servants and receive visitors. So again, I find myself appreciating learner's scholarship in the way mm -hmm. that she tells us what it means to be a canoness and to know that it was possible for women to join a convent and not take a vow of poverty. I think for me, growing up Catholic, I still remember at the parochial grade school that I attended, 
There was the rectory where the priests live, and there was a convent where the sisters lived. And, and I don't know why, but we were just told all of the sisters had taken a vow of poverty. And, you know, I think when you hear that, when you're in fourth or fifth grade, you just remember it. And so I've always thought yeah, of, yeah. for better or worse, I thought of sisters in in Roman Catholicism as always taking this vow of poverty, right? And yeah. maybe the priest not necessarily having to take that same vow. Oh, how interesting. I don't think I was supposed to question it at that time, but that's what was running through my mind. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing. I don't have that context, so I appreciate your you talking about that. And like you said, Lerner has done her research, right? Into like yeah, every absolutely. aspect of these women. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. That's great. Yes. And speaking of her research, I have a couple more quotes to share. Yes. Rosvita left a major body of work consisting of eight verse legends, six rhymed plays, a poem depicting scenes from the apocalypse, and two historical poems. There is good evidence that her plays were performed or at least read aloud at court during her lifetime. What is of special interest here is not only her talent as a writer and her being the first known European female playwright, but the fact that all of her work is concerned with history and especially the history of women. So Rosvita, as a scholar, says in her own writing, so if in either book, I have included anything false in my composing. I have not misled of my own account, but only by incautiously imitating misleading sources. I love that. I love that she's aware of citing sources and the importance of that in scholarship. (laughs) Yeah. This rudimentary effort at documentation and source critical analysis is quite remarkable in an age in which literature freely combined real stories fabulous and miraculous events, legends, biblical sources, and fantasy without distinction. So to just comment on that quote, Rosvita also wrote extensively about rape through three of her dramatic plays that, according to Lerner, comes closest to expounding her views about the power of women. In these plays, her female protagonists are threatened by rape from masculine figures of authority such as a governor and an an unwanted suitor for a protagonist who was already married. In these plays, Rosvita empowers the women by stressing a major theme, the power of chastity over male power, which I read as a woman's right to say no as a means of asserting her personal will and power. With the lens of today, I know this appears problematic But for her time, Rosvita is eking out what she can. She's eking out a resistance that demonstrates the ability of women to think for themselves despite the costs. In another play, she depicts the rapist as a ludicrous fool whose power is illusionary, which Lerner cites as a remarkable evidence of female consciousness at this early period. Yeah. It sure was, right? Because rape was just kind of a part of life for women for so long. So for her to be writing against it with such confidence, I think is really, really rare, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think even today, I think as women, whether or not we want to ever admit it, there's always that fear and that concern. But in her writing, 
Rosvita makes it a moment of that's empowering by the way she depicts mm-hmm. these men, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Wow, she was really ahead of her time. She was. Well, that's such a great example of a of a powerful woman who had a sense of her own authoritative voice. So I will take the next one. So let's see. You said Rosvita was uh, the year 932 to 1002. And our next one is slightly after that. It's Hildegard of Bingen. And she was alive from 1098 to 1179. Um, Lerner talks about Hildegard and describes that she led a life of constant activity, strenuous travel and public appearances, exhausting mental work that lasted well into old age. Um, Lerner says, uh, quote, she was privileged in her ability to free herself from traditional gender roles by living as a part of a female community, enjoying what Sarah Evans has listed as a precondition for feminist consciousness, free space. This was the free space provided by convent life and the absence, the absence of women's domestic and reproductive responsibilities. But it must be understood that this relatively free space was a space within a patriarchal institution, the Catholic Church, in which all the higher offices and positions of power were held by the male clergy. Um, in reading that, it made me think of Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, right? Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. You need, you need space. You need time to think you need space away from people. And that's what, um, having a career and an office, um, whether it's a clerical office or, um, an office, you know, in commerce or whatever you do sometimes affords, or, and especially if you go into academia and, um, the scholastic world, that's what men were able to have in very, very, um, infrequently were women allowed to have that free space. So that's what the convent offered. Um, so some quotes from Hildegard herself, um, or rather, I guess maybe some summaries of what she thought she, she repeatedly asserts that women and men are different in their physical and psychic structure and that, um, women are destined to be subordinate to men. She says, man was transformed from clay into flesh and is therefore stronger. Woman was made directly from flesh and is thereby weaker. And so you just see throughout some of the things she says that like she kind of can't get past the Bible. She's just re- right. kind of limited by um, her her education and her training has all been within the context of the religious rules that are you know described in the Bible. And so she can't quite get past it, but it's, it's baby steps, right? I mean, she's raised on the Bible and the Greeks and she she's getting a lot farther than, than most. So um, she, she's interesting. This is pretty revolutionary in her telling of the fall, like the fall of man. She removes the blame for the fall from Eve and all women. Instead, the fall becomes almost preordained by the bodily weakness built into Eve by the creator. Um, Hmm. And we'll see this version of the fall retold by many women in the later centuries. So for me, again, this isn't exactly satisfying, like saying like, well, Eve was weaker. And so she, I mean, the implication there is like, she was more childlike. So she, she couldn't be accountable for what she did. That's better, I guess, than, you know, the quotes that we read at the beginning of the episode from the church fathers that are like, yeah, no, women are evil and women are influenced by Satan. I think it's, it's an improvement, I guess, to think of a woman as not, um, 
cognizant of her sin and being and, and causing the fall of man on purpose from her from her evil but it's still i yeah not obviously not satisfying but again it's like taking steps that other women were not able to take um another thing that hildegard is known for is her music and her art she was really kind of a renaissance woman and was multi-talented and created a lot of works of art in different genres and there are lots of feminine figures in her visions and her art she has wisdom or sophia the figure of scientia dei or the knowledge of god who embodies both kindness and terror and sapientia representing divine wisdom in church and the cosmos she has illuminations of her visions in circles and curves and waves and mandala-like designs. And this is really neat because Lerner points out that it avoids any concept of hierarchy in favor of wholeness, roundedness, and integration. Those are Lerner's words. And that really, for me, evoked what we talked about a couple episodes ago with the chalice and the blade with a more female model is right. less hierarchical right? It's a partnership model is what Rianne Eisler calls, calls it instead of the, the stereotypical male patriarchal model is always hierarchical. And, and they impose that imposes hierarchies in all aspects of society. And so I love that. I mean, if you've seen um, some of Hildegard's work, it is, it's very, it's always round. It's kind of undulating and, um, organic and looks like it's inspired by nature. Um, one last point about Hildegard that I think is really powerful is that she believed that she derived her authority from God himself. Um, in her art, in three of the illuminations appearing in her late work, Lerner says, Hildegard has painted herself into the visions. The visions are abstract and interpretive in her subject matter. Each of these illuminations shows a mandala with many circles representing various aspects of the universe with a human figure at its center. In the left-hand corner of each of these pictures, there's the figure of a seated nun writing on two mm. tablets shaped like the mosaic tablets. She's like inserting herself into the patriarchal <laughs> tradition and kind of like wow, it's fantastic <laughs> it's fantastic right <laughs> it's so great okay learner continues she says her face is lifted up and touched by some sort of radiance this self-conscious hmm. self-representation may very well be the first of its kind for a woman no longer merely god's little trumpet which i'm inserting here i forgot to mention that um, Hildegard ca called herself in her earlier years, God's little trumpet, like she was just an instrument for the divine, but now she's kind of taking on her own role and her own authority. And now this is Lerner again, no longer merely God's little trumpet who wished to be seen in the art of writing down her visions in the act of authorship, wishing to be remembered in her own right. She became the first female inspired by mystical revelation to claim her place in history. Love it. So that's yes, Hildegard. Wonderful. I love how she evolved herself, the way she thought of herself from thinking of herself as God's little trumpet to actually inserting herself in the art. It's like, you could just see the progress of her confidence mm -hmm. and that sense of personal agency, right? Yes. That's yes. good stuff. Wonderful. <sighs> 
So for our final example, I have Christine de Pizan, who was born in 1364 and is the first woman known to make a living by her pen, something I still aspire to, to this day. Oh, oh man. Yes. Right? You and me both. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Christine was born in Venice in, as I said, 1364. Her father, Thomas, was a famed astrologer and physician. And early in Christine's childhood, the family moved to Paris because the King of France, Charles V, asked her father to become his astrologer for the royal court. During this time, astrology was considered a science. Christine obtained an excellent education. Although her mother opposed her studying, thinking that it really wasn't necessary because, given their family's position in society, Christine was assured a good match in marriage. However, Thomas, again her father, objected to this and encouraged his daughter to read and learn as much as she could, in particular the writers of history. Christine read both the classical texts as well as the works of the Church Fathers. Lerner tells us that at the age of 15, Christine married Estienne de Castel, a notary. Her husband encouraged her literary activities, and from all accounts, their marriage was very happy. Her husband died of the plague, however, in 1389, not long after her father had died impoverished. At the age of 25, Christine was widowed, without income, and faced with her husband's debts. She supported herself, her mother, and her three young children by copying and producing books, creating illustrations, and even working as a notary, all while making her reputation as a writer. Lerner also tells us, that Christine earned extra income as a popular ballad writer. People would come to her and ask her to write poetry that she would then set to music. Christine lived in the world, engaged in the court and politics, and was soon recognized as a poet and received a commission to write the biography of Charles V. She made her reputation as a defender of women when she attacked Jean de Man's popular Roman de la Rose for its mockery of women. This led to an exchange of letters with some of the leading male humanists of her time, in which her reputation was attacked and which started a three-century-long debate on the status of women, known as the Querelle du Femme. Christine continued her argument in her major work, The Book of the City of the Ladies, in 1405, a spirited defense of women and a deliberate effort to constitute a history of women. So because Christine is important and because we have more on her, I thought that you, Amy, could tell us more about the City of Ladies. Sure, yeah. Okay, she began the book with a marvelous account of her own transformation of consciousness. Sitting in her study, reading one of the many misogynist tracts of the day, and here I'm going to insert we can assume like some of the things that Jeanette, that you and I read at the very, the beginning of yes. this episode were things that Christine would have been reading. Right. Yeah, um, and she began to wonder, and this is understandable now that we've read some of this stuff, 
This is a quote. This is Lerner quoting Christine de Passant. The quote is, she began to wonder how it happened that so many different men are so inclined to accept, to express so many wicked insults about women. It seems that they all speak from one in the same mouth. That's the end of the quote from Christine. And now Lerner continues. She examined herself and her experience and could find no evidence to support the claims of these men. Yet she bowed to the authority of the male experts. Um, quoting Christine again. And so I relied more on the judgment of others than on what I myself felt and knew. End of quote. Here, for the first time in the written record, we have a woman defining the tension every thinking woman has experienced between male authority denying her equality as a person and her own experience. Christine was deeply depressed by this recognition when, as in a vision, three ladies appeared to her to comfort her and to bring her out of the ignorance which had blinded her intellect. Lady Reason explained to her that she had been selected to, quote, vanquish from the world the same error into which you had fallen, end of quote, and that she was entrusted with the task of building a city of ladies in which all valiant women might find refuge from attacks and slander. The other two ladies, rectitude and justice, would help her in this task. Awed and elated, Christine asked the three women to explain to her why men had so universally attacked and slandered women. The ladies offered various explanations, and the ensuing long dialogue with the three spiritual guides allowed Christine de Pizan to, de to develop her historical argument and to illustrate by example the virtues of women. This allegorical framework, which assumes that the patriarchal explanatory system is built on error, structures the book. Her attempt at creating a unifying ideology is deliberately broadly based. She speaks at various points of all women, whether noble, bourgeois, or lower class. Her essential contribution was not only to attempt to rebut misogynist arguments by means of historical evidence, but to insist that patriarchal generalizations and dicta would have to be evaluated and tested in light of the female experience, past and present. What Christine de Pizan had to offer to women was the insight that women must look to other women for their defense and that the collective past of women could be a source of strength to them in their struggle for justice. Reading that again, Jeanette, I am almost in tears. I'm so inspired. Oh my goodness. I'm so happy you had that you allowed me to read that. <laughs> Because I internalized it more because I read it and highlighted it and you and I both chose it to be a part of the podcast, but I'm just so moved and inspired by her. Wow. I, uh, I agree. I mean, just the idea of creating this like sanctuary for women, right? Mm -hmm. Women who are going to live to their fullest and also treat each other well. It's like, why is that so much to ask, right? right. That's all we want. Yeah. 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 I thought also it was just a great tie-in with our earlier discussion about knowing that as women, we go through a lot of the thought processes that other women go through, we experience on an individual level, but we can also be there for each other as well. It's just wonderful what she has it to is. say. So Lerner tells us that Christine's work responded to and demolished all the major and minor charges leveled against women. 
She did this by raising all the misogynist charges against women in a dialogue with Lady Reason, an allegorical figure of real serenity who answered each charge with arguments, with examples from history, myth, or fable, and with appropriate excerpts from the Bible. I love that she named, that Christine named her main figure in her book, Lady Reason. That just says so much about her and the way she thought. What is most unusual about Lady Reason's defense of women is that it confidently reversed the existing order of gender. She unabashedly depicted women in a better light than men and praised their virtues without apologies. Christine's calling the Bible for worthy heroines and examples set a precedent which would be followed for centuries, yet none of the women writing in the same vein ever cited her, nor is there any evidence that they knew of her or her work. Yet it was Christine de Pizan who launched women's participation in the debate over women's status in society represented by the Carrel de Femmes, which would go on for three centuries in various parts of Europe and in England. It developed as a playful and at times bitter exchange between feminists and anti-feminists of both sexes and represented the first serious discussion of gender as a social construct in Western European history. And there I have it. Because of this project, I've learned about a woman author from the Middle Ages. And not only a woman author, but Christine de Pizan, who was outspoken and celebrated. It's really incredible. Had had you ever heard her name before? Before reading no. this book? No, I had not. But I was so excited to hear about her and learn about her that I had one of those moments now that I'm working on my master's thesis where I thought, if only I knew about her, <laughs> right? I could be writing and researching her. <laughs> so totally. next time, next time. <laughs> next time. Yeah, we'll so do it really, for maybe our PhD dissertation. That's right, right? We could do it on the, yeah, on the City of Ladies. I'd love to read that. Have you read that work? Yeah, no. No, I haven't read the work and I'd never, like you, I'd never even heard of her. And it's just Lerner's point, uh, like case in point, right? That all of these women, how Lerner points out, like women don't get to benefit from the wisdom of other women. Let me tell you about all of these women and I, as a reader, have never heard about them. So it's just, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to have encountered these women and I wish that I had known about them earlier, but better late than never. So. That's right. I think that's right. It just goes, I guess, again, it's proving learner's point. We need to learn about women's history. And a lot of that is investing the time, which you are doing, right? Which is fantastic. Yeah, which we're, yeah, we're doing it together. Um, what would you say, Jeanette, as we wrap up, what would you say one of your main takeaways is from this book? All right. So if I had to pick a main takeaway, I think I found myself truly moved by the stories of the women that Lerner discusses in her book. Their struggles to live their lives as full and complete individuals, I found to be both very motivating and also humbling. I think that the sense of deprivation they encountered is mind-boggling on one level. 
to just acknowledge and be aware of the artificial limits placed on their lives, purposely there to thwart their education and repress their ability to think simply for the reason that they are women. But on another level, it's also hard not to see the consequences of such practices, even today in our own time. And what's one of your takeaways, Amy? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I will take away from this book is a renewed determination to share women's history with as many people as I possibly can. I, I'm just thinking about the title of the book, The Creation of Feminist Consciousness. I think of creating like a, a collective feminist consciousness by maybe adding more women to our school's curriculum. Um, like our national school curricula, which is something that I want to get involved with in the future. Um, and I also think about creating a feminist consciousness in each of our own individual minds. And like you said, it's um, for me, it's the examples of the women that we talked about at the end of the episode today that made a really big impact on me. Like I was thinking about Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz in Mexico that you talked about um, in the 1600s and her saying, um, Where's that quote um, you quoted? She said, I have this inclination, meaning the inclination to study. And if it is evil, I am not the one who formed me thus. I was born with it and with it, I shall die. And I just loved her self-confidence. It reminded me of Pete Buttigieg when he was responding to Mike Pence about being gay and just saying, if you have a problem with me, it's not, you don't have a problem with me. It's with the person who made me. It's with my maker. And just having that confidence and then somebody hearing someone say that and witnessing that confidence and how that inspires other people to say, yeah, wait a minute, there is not, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, but we have these societal pressures, um, to conform that really can dampen like the brilliance of our own souls. And anyway, so I, I just want to bring the knowledge of these, women to other women because I do think it makes a difference and I and I just have to say also just that portion that that you had me read from Christine de, P de Pizan um in the this woman that lived in the 1300s and 1400s that I'd never even heard about but I really related to her I I think of how I felt when when we were reading those quotes from the church fathers at the beginning of the episode and a lot of those men are men I've read and studied and admired. And it really hurt me. I, it did like we, we planned to read it and I, but it, it just makes you feel small to, to read what they think of you. And I think of Christine de Pizan reading those same people and her falling into a depression as she internalized that misogyny. And I can relate to it. And when she said, um, she says, and so I relied more on the judgment of others than on what I myself felt and knew. She's writing that in like the year 1400. And it just really speaks to me. I feel like I lived my life that way for way too long, relying more on the judgment of others than what I myself felt and knew. And I love that Christine had a vision led by Lady Reason, who tells Christine that she is going to vanquish from the world the same error into which Christine had fallen. And I guess that's my personal takeaway. I, I want to be involved in that um, effort to vanquish from the world women feeling alone, 
women feeling small, women not knowing that other women before them have also struggled and have actually made powerful steps forward that we can learn from and that we can stand on these women's shoulders, our, um, our foremothers, and that we can make progress and not just reinvent the wheel, like Gerda Lerner says. So I guess that would be my takeaway. Well, thank you, Jeanette, so much for being here. This was a fabulous discussion and I learned so much from you and I'm so glad that we got to read this book together. It was such a joy. I am too. Thank you again for asking me to read the book and introducing me to Gerda Lerner and all the fantastic women that she writes about that I had just no, I had no idea they existed and that they've left us with these written records and they're actually out there. So thank you so much, Amy. It's been a blast as always. <laughs> Thanks, Jeanette. Well, on our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing our first primary source document. Rather than being a history book written about women of the past, this will be a text written by a woman in her own time about the patriarchal practices of her day. The author is Olympe de Gouges, and the essential text is The Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. It was written by de Gouges right after the French Revolution in 1791. You can find it online or there's a really lovely bound book. It's like just a small book that you could like stick in your bag or put even on your coffee table because it's really pretty. It has commentary um, on the document and then just inspiring quotes throughout and some neat illustrations. Anyway, that's the one I bought and it's available at bookstores if you're inclined to buy it. Um, but again, you can just read it for free online if you like. It's a short read and I really highly recommend reading it if you can. Or if you can't, just join us for a stimulating discussion, again, of Olympe de Gouges, The Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.